So we're looking at uh, the Gospel of Luke, beginning in verse 6, and <clears throat> this is um, another instance where Jesus finds himself doing what Jesus does. He spends time in the synagogue. He's always there teaching. He's always there um, with the people of God in the house of God. He's always there making himself available <clears throat> in the synagogue as much as he possibly can be. Uh, but we also find that this, of course, is a day where they are doing this, um, as is their custom, and, and Luke calls it out explicitly because it comes back to back with the previous section, uh, that this is uh, a Sabbath day. He is on uh, in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and uh, if you recall last week, we looked at the text uh, of Jesus walking through the, uh, the grain fields on the Sabbath. And Luke calls out that argument there. He calls out that um, narrative so as to uh, bring forth this friction between the Pharisees uh, and Jesus regarding the views of the Sabbath. And if you remember what we said last week is that Jesus ends the statement, he ends the last section uh, making this statement uh, to, the, to the Pharisees. He tells them that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That is, he means to uh, declare that it belongs to him, that he is the owner, that he is the initiator of the Sabbath, and that no Sabbath can be had, no rest can be had apart from him. And so as we come to our text this morning, uh, this is not the same Sabbath, but rather this is another day where Jesus has gathered with the people of God to spend time with them, to teach, uh, and uh he is here on the Sabbath, and it, it, it opens uh, with that description. It's another Sabbath. He's entering the synagogue. He's teaching. And if you recall uh, that what we said last week was that the Sabbath is rooted in creation. It's not just uh, about the Mosaic law, but it's connected to the created order. It's connected to God working for six days in creation, and then on the Sabbath day, he rested. And so for the people of God throughout their history, they were all they were given the Sabbath uh, as a tool. They were given, given the Sabbath as a way to mimic God in, uh, in their work week. They were given the Sabbath as a tool to be reminded of what he did and to rest in him. Uh, but they were also given the Sabbath as a practical way uh, to have a day of rest, to rejuvenate. They do not have uh, the unlimited resources that God does have. And so God wants to provide a, a period of rest for his people. And so they work six days, they're told, and to rest on the Sabbath and then to begin again. And so they start their week uh, in this particular way. Uh, and we find here that this is exactly what's taking place, that what's, what's supposed to be taking place uh, in, in this moment. Jesus is in the synagogue. He's teaching. They're enjoying God together. Um, the people are getting rejuvenated. It's a day of rest for everyone. And in this moment, <clears throat> we find that Luke calls out for us in verse 6, that in the, in the synagogue, among the people, during this teaching, there was a man whose right hand was withered. So there's this guy who's there, and he is sitting amongst the crowd, uh, and it seems as if he has some sort of uh, a condition. 
uh, it's described as being a withered hand. Uh, and what this most likely refers to is that he had some level of paralysis um, in uh, this um, in his in his right hand, uh, whether that would be uh, not just simply from from the wrist uh, forward to the fingertips, but uh, could be as far as up from the uh, elbow all the way down to uh, the fingertips. And so uh, here he is somebody who has lost the use of this limb, whether uh, he was uh, born this way or whether this was something that developed over time, we're not sure. Uh, it's, there's no, no details given to us. But what we do know is that this man is in a position where he is unable to use his right hand as it's been designed by God. Uh, he, he is a broken uh, he has a, a broken condition. His his uh, use of that of that particular uh, limb has been diminished. His body is experiencing the corruption of the sinful state of the world. That uh, this is a moment where this man should have full range of motion, should have full use of his hand, but he does not have this. It's it's uh, it's withered back. And I think that that is a great description of, of what's happening here, because that's what, that's what sin does when uh, it, it brings things back, it pulls things back, it squashes them down, it brings the life out of them. To wither something away is to remove its strength, to remove uh, all of the, the source of energy and life and the potential that exists there. And so this has drawn back so much that uh, it is noticeable uh, that there may perhaps be some sort of uh, uh, deformity with it. But Jesus uh, or Luke notes for us that this man exists in the crowd. Now, uh, some scholars uh, have uh, posited that perhaps the, it was the Pharisees who put this man in the midst of the synagogue. That perhaps he was somebody who was there, who they said, "Hey, you're gonna you're gonna be in sitting here today," or perhaps they gave him a uh, a falsely led him on to be like, "Oh, you're really important. We really want you to be in here today." Uh, we don't have any confirmation of these things, uh, but what we do see is that while uh, this man is in the crowd, while Luke describes to us that this man is in the crowd, while Luke describes to us that Jesus is teaching, what we do see is that uh, the scribes and the Pharisees are here to spy on Jesus. This is exactly how it's described in verse 7. We read this, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. They watched him. They watched him closely as Jesus is, is there uh, standing to read, as he's sitting to teach, as he is uh, expositing the scriptures to the crowd as they are responding. Um, they are standing there uh, in the in the entry. They're standing there in the on the walls, uh, you know, with their arms crossed, looking at Jesus, looking to see what he will do. They know that there's this this man that exists in this space who has this uh, circumstance in his life. They know that there's Jesus who uh, constantly rubs up against their religious traditions. He uh, bucks the, the things that they have put in place. 
And so here they are, they are, they're watching Jesus closely. They're, they're actually uh, uh, spying on him, really. Uh, this is what the term here, uh, when it says that they uh, watched him, that, that's a, it's, it's a, a way, uh, it's a Greek word that describes to look on emotionally. Like they are fully invested. They are looking to, to watch out, to see what he's doing. They're, they're looking out of the corner of their eye as to like, be like, we're going to get him. We're going to get him this time. And that's how Luke describes this. Uh, he says uh, they wanted to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. They wanted to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, right? So that they might accuse him. These uh, Pharisees, these scribes, they knew what Jesus was about. They understood why he was here. They knew that there's somebody exactly in this room and Jesus is here and he is concerned uh, with those who have the greatest need. And so you'll note here that the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't pay attention to the man with the withered hand like, oh man, like it would be great if that guy could be helped. It would be great if he didn't, if he had full range of motion, if, if his, his withered hand could be made whole. They're not, they don't care about that guy. They are only using him as a ploy. They're only using him as a trap. They don't want to see this man's uh, need taken care of. They don't care if he can be made whole. <clears throat> They're focused on if Jesus is going to violate the Sabbath, will he break the rules? And, and the reality is, is that they knew that Jesus is attracted to those who are broken, those who are in need. They, are, they, know, they realize that, that Jesus absolutely wants to go to those who need to be made whole. They understood that. They fully understood that this was his, his mindset. They see the guy. Perhaps they put the guy there. Jesus is here. Oh, this is an irresistible trap for Jesus. Jesus can't help but take care of this man. We got him this time. Like, what kind of mindset is that? That they wouldn't be like, oh, wow, that's so kind. But in there, you, you, you see that that's exactly what's revealed. For, for the, the Pharisees, they want to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Not, they want to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that way his claim of being Lord of the Sabbath can be uh, ratified and they can be like, oh, we rightly understand now what you want to do here, Jesus. Because of their view and their mindset, they view the Sabbath as a day uh, in which it is inappropriate to bring this healing to pass. They want him to do this. They absolutely want Jesus to heal on the Sabbath so they can accuse him, not so Jesus can heal this guy on the Sabbath and then this guy can be made whole. They want this for the wrong reasons. They're not interested in giving life but they're interested in trying to set up a trap to destroy Jesus. Now, <clears throat> as we look at the whole exchange here, what we really see is a, a broader view of how sad it is that they knew him well enough that they could be sure that Jesus would fall into this to show compassion to someone in need, but all the while reject 
Jesus's work. Because all along, Jesus has been trying to reveal himself as different. The one who is caring, who is compassionate, who is trying to act out uh, in a uh, physical way in obedience to the, the scriptures, in obedience to uh, the description of what Israel should be doing with the outsider, what Israel should be doing with those who are broken, those who are poor, those who are the sojourners, those who are the foreigners. Jesus has been trying to outline this in his interaction, that he would be kind, that he would show generosity, that he would uh, obey the Father in all of these things. He's trying to pave the way to show the scribes and the Pharisees, this is what true Israel looks like. This is what we ought to be doing. He's trying to put this on display and reveal the heart of God to these people. The heart of God is not one that would, would withhold goodness to the broken, that would withhold healing to those who would ask for it. But rather, uh, the Pharisees are describing the heart of God as being one who is absolutely uh, unrelentingly rigid in his desire to be generous or to give. That's not what we find in the scriptures. We find that God is uh, loves to give. He is absolutely generous, and in this case, has fully given his son. Now, as these two, uh, as these tensions exist here in the middle of this room, uh, this man is there. We find that Jesus, he's not confused. He's not like, wow, I didn't see this coming. He knows exactly what's happening. He gets it. He sees how this is, what, what trajectory this is on. And so he engages it instead. Look at verse 8. <clears throat> verse 8. But he knew their thoughts. He knew their thoughts. Okay, first off, Jesus knows what his opponents are thinking. And so he acts. He responds. He doesn't just be like, okay, well, like, I'm not really sure what's happening here. He knows. He understands. He gets it. He knows they want to get him. And I think that this is a good reminder for us. Because as much as Jesus knows, uh, the heart of his opponents here. As much as Jesus knows that they are doing these things uh, with incorrect motives, with wrong motives, when Jesus responds, he is not responding simply to say, you're wrong, be condemned. But rather, he is saying, I want to respond so that you also might have life you also might draw near. I think that this is one of the things that helps us as the people of God when we are trying to live the life of a Christian. Oftentimes, uh, we are walking through life and we think, well, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. But in the back of our mind, it would, it would, we, we skip over the fact that God knows, that he is aware of what's going on in our heart. As, uh, that, that he knows exactly what we're thinking. He knows what we're pursuing. You cannot trick him. You cannot slip one by him. It's not going to happen. He knows what's going on. He knows where you're at. 
And so I find that it is uh, infinitely more helpful to be communing with him in prayer, to be sharing with him how you are feeling, because it's not a surprise to him. It's not like you're going to be like, well, God, I'm feeling this way. And, you know, I'm having a hard time with this. He's there to say, I know. Not, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. I thought you were better. No, his response is always, I know I was waiting for you to come to me for help. I know I was waiting. Uh, I, I wanted you to come so that way I could give you what you need. So you could come and ask what you need for what you need. But too often we hold God at a distance. Uh, we hold him at a distance because we fear that he will find out. Guess what? He already knows. He already is aware of this. The only people who are not aware is us. He already knows us fully. And this is what the, the, the truth and the glory of the gospel is, is that as, as sinners, as people who, are, who, who were dead in our trespasses, God knew us fully. He knew how bad we were when we were his enemies, but yet still sent his son to die for us. He knew the, the, the breadth of our sin, the sins that we have committed in the past, the sins that we will commit today, and the sins that we will commit tomorrow into the future. These are things that he is aware of and has uh, decided to set his love upon us anyways through the giving of his son so that we might find reconciliation to him through the blood of Christ. He has made a way for us to come to him. He's fully aware. And so we can come with boldness because he knows how bad we really are, but yet he loves us completely, loves us fully. We can have that confidence. And it's these Pharisees who come in and they're not revealing what's going on in their heart. They're not willing to say these things. But the reality is, is Jesus already knows. And as bad as, as, as much as bad as it is what they're thinking, as much as he knows what's going on there, he also wants these people to come to him. He also wants them to come and to find their life in him. He doesn't care that they're trying to trick him. He's done greater works than deal with a couple people who are trying to trick him. He's come to give his life so that these people might get what they're really after. They're trying to justify themselves with their actions. They're trying to obey the law so that way they can be seen as good people. And Jesus is trying to spend this time to tell them, you're not good people, but you can still find a place in the house of God. I still want to invite you into the house of God. And it begins with that denial of self. It begins with that confession that we are not good enough, but God is good. And he invites us to be with him, to enjoy him, and to know him forever. And so Jesus knows what's going on here with these, uh, with these Pharisees. He knows what's happening in their heart. He's not confused. He's looking into the, to the thoughts of these people. And he doesn't back away. The opponents of Jesus, these Pharisees, these scribes, they tend to be very secretive. Oh, what are we going to do about this? How are we going to fight him? How are we gonna, what if he says this? And what if, Jesus just does things out in the open. He doesn't have anything to hide. He's dragging everything out into the light. So although he knows their thoughts, he encounters it head on. He doesn't, he doesn't get to the spot where he's like, well, these people are really thinking these thoughts about me. So like, I'm going to counter it by trying to like accommodate their thoughts. 
I'm going to try to like not bother them too much. No, he understands what is the truth and he brings it out into the light where it can be judged properly. And so as these people are thinking these thoughts, Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. So Jesus calls this man up. He's like, hey, uh, withered hand man, you got like this broken, messed up hand. Get up here. I need you. So he calls this guy to the center of the room. And as he gets up, I mean, you know how it is. You get called on in a crowd. Like all of a sudden, everyone's like, all the heads turn and look at you. And you're like, oh my gosh, like all of a sudden I'm on display. So this man gets up. He makes his way through the crowd, stepping over people like, hey, yo, I got to get up here, get to the spot. He gets to his spot. He, he stands there. And in this moment, you realize that Jesus is making zero attempts to avoid this trap. He could have easily sidestepped this and just been like, okay, like I'm going to deal with this guy after. I'm going to go find this guy like on another day. We're going to come back to him. He makes zero attempts. He does not care what anybody thinks. He's doesn't make any effort to avoid this man or to, to avoid this situation. He doesn't try, try to avoid the trap. He never tries to hide. There's the truth, and Jesus drags it straight out into the light. Here is the man. Here is the guy who's broken. Here is the guy whose power is diminished. He is, he is not rejuvenated in his arm. It is completely withered and uh, pulled back. And so he uses this man as an object lesson and also brings healing to this particular man. But he uses it to encounter the Pharisees' uh, hard-heartedness and to encounter the thoughts that they have not shared. And so uh, he brings this man up. I'm sure this guy, this man, uh, he probably was not super pumped about this because now everyone's looking at him and now the Pharisees are going to be all mad at him. Uh, but here's what he, here's what Jesus says. He said to them, that is the Pharisees, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? So he poses this question to the Pharisees. He knows their thoughts. Uh, and he asks this question that contrasts their perspective on the issue of the Sabbath with his perspective on the issue of the Sabbath. Here's what you're saying it is. Here's what I'm saying it is. Now, if they answered this correctly in, his, uh, in this bit of wordplay here, they would have to say that it was right to do good on the Sabbath and it was uh, wrong to do harm. Good to do right, wrong to do harm. Easy, right? If it was right to do good, then he was doing good by healing this man. So they, ca they can't say that it's right to do good on the Sabbath, because if they say it's right to do good, then doing good is healing this man. Uh, but it breaks down a bit further than there. Okay, so let's contrast these, these up against each other. So we have doing good versus doing harm. And then we have saving a life versus destroying a life. So doing good versus doing harm, saving a life versus destroying a life. And in, in Jesus's uh, analogy here, when he says doing good, he means to compare these against each other, to, to attach them 
uh, to one another. So he says, doing good essentially equals saving a life, but doing harm equals destroying a one, destroying a life. Now, Jesus' argument is a little bit more granular here, and he's catching the Pharisees uh, in a bit of wordplay as well. Because when Jesus uses this phrase here, uh, to do good is to save a life. To do good, uh, is, it, is it lawful to do good or do harm? Is it lawful to save a life or to destroy it? When he's talking about saving a life here, he uses the, a particular word for salvation here. This is not a word uh, that speaks uh, exclusively to, to uh, deliverance in a life or death situation, but it's more of a, uh, a generic term for saving. It's, it's more of one that speaks to restoration and healing. He, he, it's, it's about making whole, repairing, rejuvenating. Uh, is it is it okay to it, but but it also does does connect this to uh, a, a proper technical salvation term as as uh, uh, the saving of a life. So he kind of uses this term that is connected there. Uh, but what he's doing there is he's using this term to show that his actions, even in their little granular way, are in keeping with the Sabbath since it's you it's it's saving and saving is permitted on the sabbath it's saving a life so you want to play that game i'll play that game but what he's doing here more fully is he's emphasizing the the parts of this word that speak to making whole healing repairing rejuvenating he's not about saving a life in the sense that this man's not going to die if he doesn't receive this healing today, but rather Jesus is saying that, is it okay to rejuvenate, to repair, to heal? He's bringing this to the forefront and he makes the analogy that this is the same as doing good. Now, if you stand against that, then you must believe in doing harm, in destroying that, in destroying that opportunity. The Pharisees are not willing to let this man be freed from his condition. They're unwilling to let him receive this rejuvenation, this repair. And so essentially, Jesus is bringing these words of conviction to them saying, you are doing harm. You're destroying. You are in this camp. Uh, their attitude, their perspective uh, is described in that way here by Jesus. And in a sense, this becomes a bit of ironic foreshadowing because ultimately they plot and plan on the Sabbath to actually destroy Jesus. But what we find here is that as, as Jesus asks this question, they don't respond. They don't say anything back. They don't, they don't commit at all to uh, giving a response. And this is primarily uh, because they don't have anything to say. They're trying, they're, they're demonstrating that for, for them, their religion is about fulfilling the rules, about traditions, rather than loving and serving and helping people. They are primarily concerned with, can we find a rule to follow? Can we prescribe this? Remember, uh, as we looked at last week, they very much uh, took pride in the fact that they had a rule for every circumstance, every situation. This was not a biblical rule, but it's a traditional rule and how they thought they would practice things. Uh, but 
this is the case for this group of people. And so they don't respond, but Jesus doesn't need them to respond. His point is made. And so now he moves to action. Verse 10, after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. Now, Jesus demonstrates here in the healing, in this particular moment, uh, he demonstrates his power, uh, and he does this through simply uh, speaking. Just as God spoke creation into existence, so Jesus speaks the recreation, the rejuvenation, the refreshing of this man's uh, physical uh, infirmity into existence. He tells him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. So let's fast forward to the end of that. His hand is restored. Now, in this particular moment, Jesus is demonstrating his power, his authority, uh, and this is an uh, example of healing coming to this individual. Now, for the scribes and the Pharisees, this would have been extremely problematic because they were of the belief that, one, you, you wouldn't break the Sabbath, and so God would not allow this to happen. He would not bring this healing, uh, he would not bring this healing to take place uh, you know, through those who claim to be by him. Uh, to, to represent him, if uh, this was something that was something that was going to break the Sabbath, or um, they were also of the pos position or the mindset that God doesn't hear sinners, and so God would not uh, listen to this request either. And so, in receiving both uh, the restoration of this man's hand, what it's showing, demonstrating to the crowd. And to the Pharisees is that God is endorsing this work on the Sabbath. That God himself is saying, A plus, this is exactly in keeping with what the Sabbath was designed for. If Jesus is right, God will heal the man, even though it is the Sabbath. Uh, and, and this was the case. Because for, uh, for the people of God, remember that this Sabbath is established for the purpose of restoring the diminished. It's about bringing uh, replenishment to those who are drained. It's about repairing the broken. It's about uh, rejuvenating that which is lost its strength, which is withered. And so healing a man's withered hand is exactly what the Sabbath is about, is, what, is what's being communicated here. To the Pharisees, this man with the withered hand it's just like this pawn in this greater plan to catch Jesus healing on the Sabbath. But to Jesus, to Jesus himself, this man was somebody who he created, who he loved, who he cared about, who he wanted to restore. This man is his unique creation, and it's not turning out how uh, it was corrupted through sin, and now this man's hand is not functional in the way that it should be. So Jesus is like, this guy belongs to me. I made him. I'm going to restore him. And so he tells this man, 
stretch out your hand. It's effective. Here's how it was effective. He told him to stretch out his hand. He exerts, uh, Jesus exerts no physical actions. He just speaks, as we said. He communicates through his words. He's not uh, doing any visible work that could be attributed to him. So you can't say that Jesus was working on the Sabbath because he didn't do anything. He just spoke to this guy. But he brings this command to this man to stretch out your hand. Now, if you're paralyzed, can you do this? No, you cannot do that. It's impossible. You're paralyzed. It just doesn't work. It's just mean to tell someone who's paralyzed, hey, uh, stretch out your hand. If you don't have that ability, it's just messed up to call them to that. But when he calls him to do this, Jesus is the one who is giving the command to obey, but he's also the one who's bringing the empowering to obey. This man could not stretch out his hand if it was not for Jesus's empowering work. He could have argued with Jesus and been like, you don't understand I'm paralyzed. This is not a great idea. This doesn't work. This really feels like you're singling me out. This is mean. But he responds to who Jesus is. He puts his faith out on display in public. Everyone's watching him. He's in the middle of this. Why? He, he, he could either ignore and argue with Jesus, but instead he takes a risk, a risk in the midst of the synagogue, a risk, a risk in public. And what he does there is that he demonstrates before this watching crowd, before the Pharisees, before everyone who's there, the, the Pharisees who are trying to catch him, the Pharisees who are trying to accuse him, the Pharisees who want to see a healing, but for the wrong reasons, he demonstrates to all of them that Jesus is worthy of trust. That Jesus is worthy of trust when he has no other option, when nothing else can be tried, when nothing else can be trusted, when all hope is lost, you can trust Jesus. Because when he tells you to stretch out your hand and you obey, he will give you the empowering to do it. For this man, it was impossible. But Jesus calls us as God's people out into the impossible. Jesus's command comes uh, attached with the power to do it. He gives us the will, the desire, and the ability to follow him, the, uh, the empowering to walk in what he has called us to. The book of Ephesians tells us that he has prepared good works that we might walk in them. They're already done. They're already ready. It's as if he's completed them like 99%, and we're just going to like follow in the footsteps and go through the motions trying to contribute whatever we can. He's prepared these things for us. And he calls us to things sometimes that feel impossible, but he wants us to deal with that impossibility. He wants us to rub up against that so that way we have to say, Jesus, there's no way that this can be done unless you're involved, unless you're a part of it, unless you're leading me into it. It's not going to work unless you're doing it. And so he commands him, but also enables him to participate in this. And so he makes this declaration. Jesus's empowering is simply his word. He says, go do this. 
Jesus doesn't participate in any physical exertion on the Sabbath. So you can't really, the Pharisees can't really say, well, Jesus did all this work. Jesus was just standing there and he just spoke to this guy. So nobody can really say that anybody worked on the Sabbath. So he gets around the whole thing anyways. Uh, but what we do find is that God endorses this healing on the Sabbath it, before the Pharisees, that they observe what God has done, what God has allowed. God has shown his power, his care, his love, his kindness, his sympathy for people through Jesus on the Sabbath. But the response now is not, oh, we understand the point of the Sabbath. We get what's going on. Instead, the Pharisees are furious. They're super angry. Look at verse 11. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They're ready to rage. Like they're just like, okay, we got called out. Jesus pulls this guy up. He's just staring into our souls trying to mess with us. And this reaction is brought forth. They do not like being put on the spot here. I mean, Jesus doesn't call them out uh, in a physical sense to where he's diminishing them before the people, but rather he knows what's going on in their heart. No words were exchanged between the Pharisees and Jesus. But Jesus gets right to it. All he did was speak a few words and the man was healed. But this is powerful enough to prompt them into plotting his death. You see, Jesus challenges their approach to religion, their approach to what they believe to be, you know, their faith. It's he's, he's becoming a problem. He's too big to ignore now. So now you've got to figure out how to get rid of him. He's disrupting life. He's disrupting our structure. He's disrupting our schedules. He's disrupting all of the things that we want to put into place. And this tends to be how, how we get in life because we want to formulize things. You know, God, you can't interrupt my day because like, I've got a meeting today. I've got to go to the grocery store. I've got to be over here. I've got to, you know, run these errands. I got to do all this stuff. So please don't interrupt me because I've got a structure I've set up. I'm trying to do my thing. It'll be great if you could make an appointment and come back on another time, but that's not how God works. We are responding to him. He is not responding to us. So if God is on the move, he wants to work, then you move your things. You cancel your appointments. You miss your important engagement. You go where God is leading you. But too often, our heart is to become uh, pharisaical in our approach. Where we start to get bothered enough, God starts to en encroach on our plans enough. And we're like, okay, like, I, I got to find something else to do. I got to find a way to get around this. I got to find an another, another option. But as God's people, we are responding to him. He is not responding to us. He is not uh, going to allow us to manipulate him. But rather, he wants to meet us where we're at. 
if we are busy, if we are overwhelmed, if we are distressed, if we are lacking resources, we can go to him much like the Pharisees can go to, could have gone to, gone to God and said, Hey, like, I'm not really sure what's going on. I'm confused. Can you just bring me back to the scriptures and show me like how Jesus is like uh, the fulfillment of this? They could come at any time and ask and humble themselves, but pride, their establishment, their formulas have set them in their place. They are unwilling to budge. But it is those who are aware of their poverty, aware of their great need, aware of their weakness, aware of their brokenness, aware that they are in need of rejuvenation that Jesus comes to. He's more than willing to come to those. It's about that humility, recognizing that you need him to work in your life. And so as Jesus asks these questions, it brings forth uh, the Pharisees, a description of their, of their real wickedness. They think it's wrong for him to perform this miracle on the Sabbath, but somehow they don't think it's wrong for them to plan his destruction on the Sabbath. They're doing exactly what he described, destroy, trying to destroy a life to do harm on the Sabbath absolutely outrageous they're trying to to do exactly what jesus calls out is it lawful on the sabbath to do good or do harm to save life or to destroy it they're trying to do harm they're plotting to do harm and to destroy on the sabbath clearly they fall in line with the description that jesus gave they don't believe uh, the, the point of the Sabbath as outlined in the book of Genesis. And for Jesus, uh, human need overrides any religious tradition. Any, anything that these Pharisees would have prescribed, human need overrides all of it. And so he declares that it's not only uh, lawful to heal on the Sabbath, but it is right to heal on the Sabbath, because the point of the Sabbath is to bring rejuvenation, to bring refreshment, to bring life, to make whole, to rejuvenate, to restore. That's the point of it. The intent of the Sabbath was to preserve God's people from working like too many consecutive days without rest, to bring a, a moment for them to, to be refreshed and to give them time to, to commune with God and it was not to prevent anyone from doing good. And so when Jesus comes into this exchange with the Pharisees, he's essentially asking them, like, why, why would you want to delay uh, healing this man when it can be done right now? There's no better time for this healing to take place than on the Sabbath. Like, that's the point of this day. There's no better time for restoration to take place than on the day of restoration. And so we want to pursue Jesus in this same way. We want to think about these things in the same way. How can we find rest in Jesus? How can we find rest in him in the day that he has given to us? Because one of the things that, that does continue for uh, Christians is we have a Sabbath. We take this as uh, we shifted one day from being uh, it being on 
Saturday to Sunday because we rest in the resurrection of Christ. We rest on the Lord's day. We shifted when the early church shifted at the resurrection. And on that day, we rest in him. We come to him for rejuvenation, for refreshment, to be reminded that we need to be made whole and that he is the one who makes us whole. And so for us, the question that we um, should not be asking is, is it wrong to do this or this or this on the Lord's day? But rather our question should be proactive and how can I best use this day to the glory of God, to the blessings of uh, the other people who are uh, other Christians, uh, how, to my neighbor? How can I use this day for my spiritual good? Not what can I do or what can I not do? It's not about uh, negotiating this, but rather how can I enjoy Jesus with other people? How can I help them enjoy Jesus? How can I be refreshed in Christ? As much as we would like formulas, as much as we would like to have that laid out for us, here's what's appropriate, here's what's not appropriate, blah, blah, blah. Those things are things that help us to be independent from Jesus. We don't need to ask him because we have it written down. But the goal of the Sabbath is to be refreshed and we have to be refreshed in him. And so it's uh, much more effective if we just come to him each day and say, what are we doing today? How can I rest in you today, Jesus? What have you provided for me? And ultimately, we find that this is the case because uh, it's his work that we're resting in. There's nothing that you or I could do uh, that would contribute to our salvation. And there's nothing that you or I could do that could contribute to uh, where we are going in life that would override the plans of God. We've got to be faithful stewards of God, what God has entrusted us with, but nothing that we, uh, that we commit to or uh, that we refrain from doing is going to prevent us from heading down that path where God is leading us, that he's preparing those good works for us to walk in. So be faithful with what you have and trust that he will be faithful to lead you on where he's taking you. It's about enjoying him along the journey, not trying to work independently from him. And clearly the Pharisees wanted to work independently from him. But when you encounter Jesus, he takes that which is broken. He takes the uh, shortcomings, that which is diminished, and makes it whole. Do we hear anything else about this man who was paralyzed, who had a withered hand? No, we don't. Because it's not the, the point of it is not that he did some great things after that. He got refreshed in Jesus, and then he was able to do like incredible stuff. That's not the point. The point is that when you encounter Jesus, he makes you whole. When you encounter Jesus, he is your rest and he brings uh, wholeness to the broken. He brings restoration to those who are in need and those who are willing to acknowledge that need. And that's where he invites each of us today to come to him and say, I'm in need of restoration. I'm, in, I'm feeling uh, diminished. I'm feeling broken down. I need to come and find my rest in you, Jesus. Will you be to me my all in all? Will you be to me everything that I need? And I want to walk with you today. And then you show up tomorrow, you do the same thing again, show up the next day, you do the same thing again, and he will be faithful to you each and every day along that journey as you walk with him. Let's pray. Lord, we are <clears throat> grateful for your example, your kindness, for the generosity that we see in uh, the text 
that you look upon this man with the withered hand with kindness and compassion. You remember him as one that you created and not one that is uh, a pawn in this plot as the Pharisees seem to use him as. You went to his need uh, and met him there and you weren't trying to simply use him uh, to make a point, but you were trying to demonstrate the through him uh, the fullness of the Sabbath, what it is intended to be. And so, Lord, may you draw us to you each day, and may you remind us each Sunday that we come to find strength in you, we come to find rest in you. We come to be made whole and be reminded of our need to be made whole. We come to be reminded that you have made all things new and made us new creations. And so, Lord, give us that desire. Give us that humility uh, to bring those things to you, to ask and to uh, share with you what's going on in our own hearts, because nothing is hidden from you. And so we want to come with boldness, knowing that you will answer in a generous and kind and loving way. Thank you, Lord, for meeting us exactly where we are. We acknowledge you as our Savior, our King, our Creator. Be glorified in your church. We love you. Amen.